0: See you guys. See you, Henry. What an especially lovely reader we had today. <laughs> um, I wanted to say before I get started, uh, in the deacons meeting on Monday, we had a brief discussion that we're singing a few more songs than we used to. And uh, it was, you know, brought to our attention that there there are some older members in the congregation that standing for three straight songs is maybe, maybe it hurts, or maybe you'd rather not do that. No one is going to think less of you if you take a seat because it is uncomfortable for you to stand through three straight songs. And I just wanted to say that publicly as the pastor and let you know, you know, feel the freedom— Uh, please sing and, and worship the Lord, but you can do that standing, sitting, however you want to do that. And so I would want you guys to know that. Well, today's sermon is on fighting our doubts. Now, as the pastor, I have never had a doubt, so I don't know anything about this. You know good and well that it would not be faith if there were not doubts. And we all have doubts. And in our story today, you're going to see that even one of the 12, one of the apostles, one of those who had walked with Jesus, doubted. But I'm going to start with a story from more of a contemporary perspective on someone who doubted and how he was able to fight his doubts. And so this is the story, you could read it actually, and some of you probably have, in Billy Graham's biography. It is called The Story of the Tree stump Prayer. At the midpoint of the 20th century, Billy Graham had already become a famous evangelist with Youth for Christ. He had preached across Europe, and in the aftermath of World War II, he had held his first Billy Graham Crusades in places like Charlotte, North Carolina and Grand Rapids, Michigan. This is all around uh, 2049, I mean uh, yes, 1949, excuse me. He was also the president at this point of Northwestern College in St. Paul, Minnesota. He was the youngest college president in the country. But Not everything, even for Billy Graham, had gone as planned. His crusade in Altoona, Pennsylvania had been, in his own words, a flop. Billy Graham having a crusade that he called a flop, that's interesting to me. It was spiritually difficult and he felt things had gone poorly. And it led him to question whether or not evangelism was really his gifting. Imagine that. One of the world's greatest evangelists questioning, is he really good at this and meant to do this? At the same time, a very good friend and a contemporary who Billy Graham was rooming with during the tours in Europe with Youth for Christ, a man by the name of Charles Templeton. He also went by Chuck, Chuck Templeton. He had begun to challenge Billy Graham's way of thinking. You see, Mr. Templeton, who had preached with Youth for Christ as well, had gone on to study at Princeton, where he began to believe that the Bible was flawed and that academia, not Jesus, had the answers to to life's real problems. He tried to convince Billy Graham, and mind you, they were really close. As a matter of fact, Chuck Templeton was supposed to be what Billy Graham became. At this time in this, in this story, when this is happening, Charles Templeton has more uh, credibility and more crusades and more uh, following than Billy Graham does. So he tries to convince Billy Graham that his way of thinking is outdated in the Bible— can't really be trusted. Billy Graham had more questions than answers at this point in his life. As a young man in his early 30s, all of this is swirling in his mind, and he travels to California in 1949. He's asking the question should I invest more fully in the college, which he knew he meant seeking further educational qualifications, at the time Northwestern there in St. Paul, Minnesota wasn't accredited and for that to be accredited as the president he would need to get advanced degrees. This would mean walking away from what would later become the Crusades, the Billy Graham evangelistic Crusades. So the question in his mind is should he leave the school and follow the calling of an evangelist? And even though Altoona had gone so poorly, did he even believe the Bible? This is Billy Graham. Did he even believe the Bible from which he was preaching, or should he follow his friend Chuck Templeton in questioning his, its validity? It was at this time that he reluctantly accepted an invitation of Henrietta Mears to visit and speak at a Christian retreat center called Forest Home in California. Mears had worked at First Baptist Church in Minneapolis for the same pastor that Billy Graham had worked for as well. And she was a very known, very well-known godly woman. But you see, when Billy Graham was at Forest Home, he spent a great deal of time studying the Bible. And he kept seeing the same phrase pop up. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Billy Graham had always accepted in his head the authority of scripture. This became the turning point as he realized in his heart that God's word that was divinely inspired, eternal and powerful. One night at Forest Home, he walked out into the woods, and he set his Bible down on a stump. It was more like an altar than a pulpit. And he said, "O oh God, there are many things in this book that I do not understand. There are many problems with it for which I have no solution. There are many seeming contradictions there are some areas in it that do not seem to correlate maybe with modern science. I can't understand or answer some of the philosophical and psychological questions that my friend Chuck Templeton and others are raising. But then in his biography it says Billy Graham fell to his knees in the middle of the woods And the Holy Spirit moved in him as he said these words. Father, I am going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to accept this as your word by faith. I'm going to allow faith to go beyond intellectual questioning and doubts And I will believe that this is indeed your holy, inspired word given to man. It is said that the very next crusade that Billy Graham preached, more came to faith in Christ than had ever before. And those that spoke said that he spoke with an authority from God's Word that they had never seen in his life before that day. What do we do with our doubts? Look with me at John 20, 24 through 25. My lovely assistant has read this before me, but let's read this again. In John 20, 24 through 25, it says, I will never believe. I will never believe unless I see it with my own eyes. You see, the others had seen Jesus before this moment, and therefore, perhaps, they were able to be a step ahead of Thomas. John is showing us the challenge it is to believe when we cannot see. And I know that because if you look down in our text in uh, chapter 20, verse 29, look what Jesus says there in twenty twenty-nine. He says basically, those that see with their physical eyes are not as blessed as those who don't see and still believe. So not seeing and believing is a greater blessing than seeing and believing. Now, let's ask the question, who who was Thomas in the Scriptures? It's it's noteworthy that all of the other disciples, with the exception of the traitor Judas, had already seen Jesus. Thomas had not. It leads me to believe, perhaps, it was his doubting that kept him from seeing Thomas I mean from seeing Jesus when the others saw him we know that Thomas is one of the twelve it says that his nickname is Didymus in the Greek which is another another way to say twin in the scriptures you will not find who his twin is because it doesn't say but that's what the word means likely he was a twin <clears throat> The other Gospels, so what I mean by that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Those three Gospels are often referred to as the Synoptic Gospels. Then you have John's Gospel. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're kind of in a category differently. And then you have John's Gospel. John is mostly, almost exclusively, I mean Thomas, is almost exclusively talked about in John's Gospel not the other three. The first time that we see John, I mean, Thomas, it's killing me! Uh, And you know, the other problem that I'm having, y'all wouldn't know this, but my brother is named John Thomas. (laughs) Uh, And so, I'm just back and forth up here. Just hang in there. Um, So, the first place we see Thomas in John's Gospel is John eleven eight? 8 you don't have to turn there but Jesus tells the disciples I'm gonna go back to Jerusalem and Thomas is the first to kind of say in shock he says you know let us also go so that we may die with him it's like don't go to Jerusalem Jesus they're already tried to kill you and then he says, so let us all go, and they'll just kill us all. So you already see in Thomas in John 11 this doubting, this pessimism. But Thomas's pessimism should not be allowed to obscure ultimately his courage. He was willing to go and die with Jesus. Even though he might be a little pessimistic on the front end, he's willing to go. And his love for Jesus is strong. And so, the question is to me, why here? Why does John, the writer of this gospel, tell the story of Thomas at this particular point? And I think the answer is found down in our text in John 20, 30 through 31. Look at John 20, Thirty through thirty-one, John, the the, uh, author of the Gospel, says, "This is the purpose for this whole book." He says this. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. The Son of God. Why were they written? Why were these things written? So that you could believe that Jesus was the Son of Christ. The Son of God. So that by believing, he says, So that by believing, you may have life in his name. So that by believing, you may have life in his name. I know that this is challenging for us to get our heads around, but the reality is, as a pastor, you're in the house of mourning probably as much as you're in the house of laughter. And Proverbs says it is better to be in the house of mourning than in the house of laughter. What I'm saying is this. We're all aging, and the death rate is 100%. But when we're young, it's hard for us to really kind of put our minds around that. As we age, we begin to, but maybe not even fully then. What this verse and what John's Gospel is saying is the greatest hope known to man. Life is short, death is certain, but God has made a way For you to live for eternity. That's why John wrote the gospel and he gave us these situations and these stories that we might have faith. Remember, the whole title of the sermon and the whole idea behind what's going on with Thomas is he's not believing and God is saying, and God is saying through John the writer, I write these things that you might believe. It is your only hope that you would believe in this gospel, that you would believe in this Jesus. And I've said from up here many times, is it that simple? Because it says at the end of verse 31, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That just believing. So I might go to someone and say, do you believe in Jesus? And they say, yes, I believe in Jesus. As a matter of fact, I did do this with several people through the years. And I could tell, though, even though they believed in Jesus, their lives were so contradictory to all of Scripture. There was no spiritual fruit in their lives. So one might ask, don't they go to heaven when they die? They believe. The Bible says all you must do is believe. But it says more than that. If you go to the Greek and you look at the word believing in a Greek lexicon or dictionary, the word for believing is trust. The word for believing is entrusting yourself to. It's not just giving intellectual assent. And the Bible's really clear on this it says, the demons in hell believe in God, but they're not going to heaven. And so there must be a difference between just believing and trusting. Trusting in him. Why, why would you need to trust? But you need to trust, and I need to trust what he has said in his word, that this is true, that when I turn on the television at night and watch that sitcom that tells me all these other things are true, it's not When we open our Bibles and we pour our souls over the Bible, it's like one of those Claritin clear commercials where at the beginning you can't hardly see anything, and then you take a Claritin clear and voila, you see everything, you know? Or maybe it's like a cataract surgery. I've never had that, but I could only imagine that it's a little bit like that. For years, it gets darker and cloudier and cloudier, and then you have the surgery, and wham, it's like, oh, wow, leaves have little lines in them. I forgot all about that. The Bible does that for our souls. The Bible does that for our souls. So what is meant by believing is trusting. It's trusting my life to Him. How do I know that? Look with me, if you would, at John fourteen twenty one. This verse is often misunderstood. I hope I can bring it with clarity. But in John 14, 21, we looked at this earlier in our study. The author of John says this. It's actually Jesus speaking. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, it's him that loves me the one that has my commandments and keeps them, it's him that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and show, manifest, show myself to him. You see what this verse is saying? That those who truly love God obey him. They obey, they trust his word, and they live in light of his word. Now, that, this is where it gets confusing. You might read that and say, I've got to prove my love for God by obeying. I've got to prove my love for God by obeying. And I would say every other religion except for Christianity in some way teaches that. What I'm saying is, is when God, and John talks about it all through the Gospel of John, when his spirit comes in, you begin you have a new nature it's like a dog becoming a cat dogs love to roll around on their backs in dirt and mud and then come in your house and get it nasty cats are just clean they like to stay clean god gives us we go from being a dog nature almost to being a cat nature we become one from the inside out who wants to be holy And when there's not this inside-out desire to obey God and to be holy, you must ask the question, are they truly followers of Christ? Because in this text, God is saying, the ones that obey me, those are the ones that love me. And then the brother of Jesus, James, he says, faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith and you don't have works, then it's not true saving biblical faith. And so, switching gears a little bit, maybe John, the author of the gospel, tells us this story about doubting Thomas at the place that he does because the story is a perfect lead-up to what he says is the purpose of the book. Thomas is doubting is Jesus really resurrected? I won't believe it until I can stick my fingers in the scars in his hands and stick my hand to the hole in his side. I won't believe it. I've got family members that feel the same way as Thomas about what I believe and why I believe it. You probably know people that are very much the same. Until he reveals himself to me in a very practical, material way, I can't believe Christianity. Jesus is saying the one who believes without seeing is blessed. Thomas' faith here is not necessarily blemished because of his need for sight. It's rather, it's a privileged faith. He's one of the disciples. He actually got to go over there and put his finger in his hands if he wanted to. He got to see the resurrected Christ. I think Jesus is talking about us when he says those that don't see but have faith are blessed. You are blessed. If you are in Christ and you did not get to see with your own physical eyes the resurrection of Jesus... You are blessed to have been able to see what you see. Paul makes the same point that John's making. In 1 Corinthians 15, 4, this is what he says. If Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching, and in this case my preaching, is useless, and so is your faith. There's a whole movement out there right now that questions the historical fact of did Jesus really live or is it more just a story and so John Updike in his poem seven stanzas about Easter this is what he says I think you can see the stanzas as I read them he says make no mistake if he rose at all it was as his body. It wasn't figurative, it was real, it was physical. If the cells disillusion, dissolution did not reverse, the molecules re knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. There had to be a true physical resurrection. God is saying through the resurrection, I'm not a man, I'm God. He says, let us not mock God with metaphor or analogy, sidestepping transcendence, meaning godness, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded crudality of early ages. He says, let us walk through the door. The stone is rolled back. It's not papier-mâché, not a stone in a story, but the vast rock of materiality that in the slow grinding of time will eclipse for each of us the wide light of day. In other words, what we believe, as supernatural as it is, a resurrected Christ, a resurrected man, that was God is real and our faith and our eternity hang in the balance on our belief that that is a true reality now do I I ever question it? (laughs) of course I do I'm a human being with a fallen nature and so are you so should, should you or will you at some point or have you questioned, I would be willing to bet 100% of us. That's what makes it faith. But are there reasons we should believe? I, wanna, I want now to switch gears for just a minute and give you three reasons that should boost your faith. It should give you deeper and greater confidence that this is true. And here they are. We can see God in three different ways. And the scriptures reveal this. We can see him through creation. In Romans 1, it talks about that. We can see God through creation. We can see God through the incarnation. In other words, what I mean by incarnation is is God coming down, taking on flesh as a man, and walking among us. We can see God through creation, we can see God through incarnation, and we can see God through the gospel. I'm going to give you little subpoints under each of those just for a moment. God, so the first one, creation. God in his glory can be seen through his creation. He can be seen through his intelligence. He can be seen through his creativity. He can be seen through his power and his beauty. For example, on vacation, my mom is a uh, bird-watching fanatic. She'll love this. She listens to every sermon I ever do. And she's got a thousand things on her back porch for birds, and several of them are hummingbird feeders. We don't have a hummingbird feeder, and I I love them. Uh, But the hummingbird, you know, I'm sitting there with my mom, And he comes, and y'all know, you've seen it probably. He's like a helicopter. He can just sit there, flapping his wings at however many milliseconds per second. I mean, he's like, and he, and I'm watching this, and I'm thinking, fascinating. That is fascinating. What I'm saying is, God and his glory can be seen through creation. What about this? The very first time I ever saw a snow-capped mountain. I mean a mountain, not a hill, but a mountain. Have you ever seen one of those? And you just thought of the majesty of it. Just, it's beautiful and it's majestic. And it's rising up to the heavens and the snow has covered the peak. Unbelievable. What about this one? Remember, I'm talking about you can see God in creation. You ever take just a moment and watch a newborn mother with her baby? There's something really special there. You can see this natural love and bond that is God-like. It's just good. We can see God in creation if we take a moment and just look and then the second one we can see God and his glory through the incarnate Christ how we see his love and then we see something that we don't see a lot in the human experience we see authentic humility real humility is special because we don't see a lot of it. We see a lot of false humility, but we don't see a lot of real humility. In the incarnate Christ, we see this. The God of the universe leaves his throne in heaven, and he comes down to earth, and he takes on flesh. In other words... The God that created and flung the stars into place and holds the earth in its gravitational pull around the sun every day, year after year, year after year, century after century, has now come down and entered into an infant so that he can know his creation. And I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but he was reliant on Mary another human being to change his diaper to keep him clean, to keep him fed the God of the universe of all power is now relying on his creation just to care for him because he's a baby, he's limited himself that's genuine humility that is loving at a whole other level. And who writes, who writes that story? J.K. Rowland wouldn't write that story. You're like, who's J.K. Rowland? Or are you saying, J- who's J.K. Rowland? Anybody else know who J.K. Rowland is? Harry Potter, that's right. Maybe Harry Potter. Maybe one of the creatives, uh, you know most creative writers of our time sold millions and millions and millions of books. Even she could not write this story. And then finally, God in His glory can be seen through the gospel. You know, many of you get up and go to work every day, and you're going to be rewarded in your work by your performance. You better show up on time, you better work hard, you better excel above your peers. And if you don't, you're not going to get rewarded. And if you don't, you're probably going to get released. And what I'm seeing in the gospel is it is the only system of thought that is just grace. I love you simply because I love you. Not because you can do this for me, Clint. You can get up and preach. Not because you're really holy, Clint. Not because I've made you more special than everybody else, Clint, because we know that's not really true. The truth is, he loves you because he loves you. The world does not operate that way. Only the gospel truth tells us that story. And so when I begin to doubt, I look at creation. I go for a walk in the woods and I I was on my mountain bike back here in our woods at Whittier Mill the other day and I heard this quick rambling in the woods and it was a deer. And I stopped because I didn't want him to kick me in the face. And I watched him run off. And in that moment, I thought, God, you're, you're amazing. That was amazing to get to watch that deer do that through these woods. All of that's going on all the time. So when I doubt, creation helps me. When I doubt, I think about the story in our Bibles of the incarnational Christ and what he did, and how J.K. Rowling and nobody else would write that story. It's not normal. It's not a human-written story. Because a human, if he wrote the story, the king would come down, and this is partly what the Jews thought was going to happen. A king would come down, and the minute they start spitting in his face, you know what a king, if a human wrote the story, he'd wipe them out. He'd destroy them all. He'd show them his power. But you know what Jesus did, don't you? At his weakest moment, hanging on a cross, he made sure the cameras of history were rolling. He wanted us to see him crucified, spit on, beaten, embarrassed, so that we would see this must be true who would write that story? And then, the last thing is the God, I mean, the gospel and the incarnation, they kind of, just hand in hand, just, I can go to heaven because I trust that he's really who he said he was. That's all I have to do? Repent and believe? I don't have to earn it? I don't have to keep trying to make sure that I'm good enough? No, that's not the gospel. And those three things always give me hope. Now, I started, and I'm going to close with the same story. Chuck Templeton, Billy Graham's buddy, they actually remained friends throughout his life. But over the next 50 years, Chuck Templeton wrote a book and the book was called, Farewell to God. Why I Became an Atheist. He spent two decades of his life traveling, some of it with Billy Graham, preaching the gospel to thousands of people. But he finished the last 50 years of his life writing this book. Lee Strobel, who is a Christian, wrote a book Called The Case for Christ. And he went in his book, for his book, to interview Chuck Templeton in his early 80s. Chuck Templeton went on to live after this interview a few more years. He was at the early stages of Alzheimer's, but he still was a very good conversation partner, according to Strobel, at this point. And in a case for Christ, the book. Strobel recounts the ending of their conversation together. And this is what Strobel asked Chuck Templeton. He said, Chuck, how do you assess Jesus? It seemed like the next logical question, but I wasn't ready for the response it would evoke. He said, Templeton's body language softened It was as if he suddenly felt relaxed and comfortable in talking about an old, dear friend. His voice, which at times had displayed such a sharp, insistent edge, now took on kind of a melancholy, reflective tone. His guard seemingly down, he spoke in an unhurried pace, almost nostalgically, carefully choosing his words as he talked about Jesus. Templeton says, he was the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings this is an atheist his commitment was total and it led to his own death much to the detriment of the world what could one say about him except that he was he was a form of greatness I this is Lee Strobel he says I was taking back. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, Templeton said, yes. He is the most important thing in my life, came his reply, stuttering, searching for the right word. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, i adore him everything good i know everything decent i know everything pure that i know i learned from jesus yes yes and though just look at jesus he was castigated by people people don't think of him that way but they have not read the bible he had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the, the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. Oh, but no, he said slowly he's the most, he stopped and started again. In my view, he declared, he is the most important being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words, I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, I miss him. And with that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and looked downward, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Templeton fought to compose himself. I could tell it wasn't like him to lose control in front of a stranger. He sighed deeply, and he wiped a tear. After a few awkward moments, he waved his hand dismissively. And finally, quietly but admittedly, insisted. Now that's enough of that. That's enough of that. Meanwhile, we know Billy Graham's story. How many lives did he change for good? Oh, Lord would you help us to believe your word it is authoritative it is from you it is inerrant and to live our lives in a way that would bring honor to you because we have trusted that indeed you speak through this word let's pray